Thank you, Jacques. Let me add my own welcome to all of you joining us here in the room, those of you joining us online. We are in the midst of this series that we started last week, looking at kind of the Mount Everest of the passages about love, of the many, many passages about love that are found in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, often associated with weddings, is not primarily a wedding text. It is God's ultimate statement of what it means to live out his call, commandment, commission in his life, what it takes to live together as the community of God's people. You remember, if you were here last week, that we summarized Paul's opening salvo with kind of a mathematical formula. You remember the one? He was saying that as, as Paul begins, he puts this proposition out there, that everything minus love equals nothing. That's his formula. And all the, although the alternatives to what love looks like might be somewhat different in our day than they were in ancient Corinth. I was thinking, though, if, if Paul were writing to the GTA, his text today might read something like this. If I could tweet to as many followers as Justin Bieber, if I had as many Instagram devotees as Taylor Swift, and I don't have love, I'm not linked into God. See what I did there? Yeah, okay. If I had a BA from McMaster and a, an MBA from McGill and a PhD from the University of Toronto, but I don't have love, they're only just pieces of paper inside fancy gilded frames. I could drive a Tesla and save the climate. I could create a startup valued at a billion dollars. I could get written up in Forbes magazine. Warren Buffett could call me for financial advice. I could get my kids into Ivy League schools without having to bribe anyone. I could outshoot Stephen Curry. I could outpitch Roger Clemens. I could outbrand Kim Kardashian. I could outsing Lady Gaga. But if I don't have love, I am as yesterday as I don't know, AOL or MySpace. <laughs> the single purpose of your life is to become a thoroughly loving person committed to your very core, to the care of other people and the nurture of your relationship with God. The, the singular purpose of our church is to allow that to happen in our lives, to unleash, as it says in our mission statement, the power of Jesus in people's lives. What is the power? It's not military might. It's not having the most accumulated knowledge or facts. It's, it's the power of love. And when we say that, you may be hearing sentimentally the, the Beatles song drifting through your ears. All you need is love. But it's not sentimentality. It's not mere affection. It's a very tangible, practical word. It's only, I think, in... In modern 20th century vocabulary and the, maybe some of the decades leading up to it, that we associated love with affection. Love for most of history hasn't been about affection. It is the tangible bond that ties people together. And in our case, it's the tangible bond that ties us to God. You know, for centuries, when you ask people, what is the purpose of life? 
They knew there, there was an answer to that. And the church played a part in forming the answer. They drilled it in people's head, catechism, teaching. The chief purpose of God or the chief purpose of, of human beings is to glorify God and to make him known. What does it mean to glorify God? It's to live out the loving image of God in you. How do you make him known? Through practicable, tangible acts of love in the world. Often we get confused about what the Bible means when it uses the word love. Again, because we drift in the direction that Hollywood takes us. Paul is going to give here in 1 Corinthians 13 that you just heard, I think arguably the greatest description of what love consists of than is ever given. And in order to get into this week's aspect or focus, I want to ask you a question about Jesus. Because, of course, for Paul... His understanding of what love looked like is informed entirely by his relationship with God through Jesus. Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the window to, the gateway to God. You want to know what the love of God is like? Look at Jesus. So here's the question. If you could use one word to describe Jesus, what would that word be? You can call them out. What would the word be? Love, honor, love again, compassion, yeah, patience. Yeah. Uh, rooms like this, that exercise has been practiced again and again. In fact, in one of the rooms, one of the one of the century's great mentors to to, to, to leaders was responding to exactly that question. A man named Dallas Willard. If you had one word to describe Jesus, what would that word be like? And like you, the audience cried out lots of answers. You might say love, maybe Lord. Lord is a word that gets used a lot in the New Testament. You would say king or, or healer, compassionate, holy, all of those things. But in this case, they asked Dallas Willard. There was this long pause, and the audience just kind of waited. What one word would you choose? Now, listen, understand, Dallas may be, I mean, one of the, the bravest and widest, wisest leaders and disciplers of leaders that the past century has produced, deep in the understanding, the study of God's word and of Jesus. And so they were really waiting for this pearl that was about to drop. One word to describe Jesus. He drew in a breath, held it, and he said, relaxed. Huh. Jesus is relaxed. I mean, seriously, that is not a word that would have been on one of my lists. And none of the great, none of the great creeds of the church do we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, born to the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and relaxed. I mean, that's, <laughs> but I think he used the word knowing that it was unfamiliar, maybe even it sounds kind of undignified, because it's not religious, but it's useful. Jesus arrived on earth in the middle of very special circumstances. I mean, from the age of 12, he understood that there was a unique call on his life. At the age of 12, he said he must be about his father's business. At that young age, he was aware both of his identity and of his purpose. He had this weight, this, this vocation that rested on his shoulders, unlike anybody else in history. And the situation in the world and in, in Israel, I mean, it was dire. And you would think with all of that weight that there would be a rush to get to it. But no, that's not what happened. 
Age of 12, he speaks, and then there's silence. Where's Jesus? Is it work in some obscure little carpenter shop? 16th birthday passes. He turns 18, 20, 25, 29, still just there, hammering nails, planing down boards of wood. Jesus, the clock is ticking. Relax. It will happen in God's time. Relax. Don't, don't worry about it. When finally he starts his ministry, John the Baptist gives him this incredible send-off, a launching pad. The crowds are listening. He's rallying them to the cause. And this would be the time. What does Jesus do? He disappears. He goes off into the desert for 40 days to be alone with God in unhurried, relaxed prayer. When he finally gets to his ministry, the first sermon that he gives in his hometown is so radically inclusive of all the outsiders that the listeners who heard it try to kill him. They actually gather together and try and throw him off the cliff. You don't believe me? Have a look. Luke chapter 4. Make me a little bit nervous, I think. Rarely when I get home from church, as my family asked me out of the sermon, go said, well, they wanted to kill me, so I guess it was a good one. Yeah, but, uh, but Luke deliberately says, in the middle of all of that turmoil, this is verse 30 of Luke 4, that Jesus walked looking relaxed in the midst of the crowds. He just kind of saunters down the street like some guy without a care in the world. Who does that? He would only be in one place at a time. He would travel at the speed that his feet would carry him and no faster. He and his disciples, one way, they were walking through Samaria. And he tells them, why don't you go ahead and scout out some food? I'm just going to hang out here by the well. I'm tired. I want to relax a bit. They get back. What's he doing? He's talking with the Samaritan woman. You remember the one? Married five times, now living with another man, be her sixth. No rabbi is going to go near this woman. And yet he's talking to her, relaxed, like he's engaged with the Pope or something. He has the longest sustained spiritual conversation ever recorded in Scripture with another human being. Just in a, a relaxed, open, conversive posture. They were in this boat one time. You remember this story? And the storm whipped itself up. The storm was so bad that disciples, they were in a state of frenzied panic. Remember, these are fishermen. They know about boats, and they know about storms. And it must have been something if it got them that frightened. They were afraid they were going to die. What's Jesus doing? Yeah, sleeping. He's having a nap. Whoever heard of a napping Messiah? <laughs> so, hey, the next time you get in trouble from your spouse for taking a nap, you just say, I'm trying to be more like Jesus. Yeah. Who decaffeinated this man? Now, at one point, Jesus' teachings become so challenging, his followers start dropping out. The crowds are slimming down. And his brothers say, hey, Jesus, I think we better get on with it while we still have some momentum. Let's go now to Jerusalem. We need to do something. We need to swing the pendulum, get the momentum back. And he says, this is John chapter 7, Relax. It's not my time yet. It's not my time. It will come. Hey, one day, he's, he's about to go into the temple courts to challenge the corrupt system there. And he's going to take out a whip and he's going to use it to scatter those people and overturn their tables. You remember, it's kind of a famous story. Here's one small detail that I didn't really notice until this week. Before he goes in, Jesus 
takes time. And what's he doing? He's braiding a whip. Jesus, what are you doing? I'm, I'm braiding a whip. Hey, couldn't you get one pre-braided? I'm, of course you could. Couldn't you make some kind of a miracle whip? Of course, but I'm going to do it myself. Relax. They're not going anywhere. And you see it probably most importantly in the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. They are a slow group. They're slow to understand. They're slow to to obey. They're slow to trust. They're slow to serve. Hands up if you're excited that the disciples give us a model for being slow. I mean, it just it makes my life feel that more possible. They misunderstood him, they doubted him, they denied him, they abandoned him. Jesus diagnoses their commitment at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 24, he says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe. And I guarantee you this. If you were the leader of an urgent movement and you knew you were on the clock, the last thing you would want on your team is sluggishness, slowness. And yet Jesus handpicked these guys. He was demanding of them, but he was never demeaning. And he never at any point said, I'm going to swap you out for a faster, brighter crew. Because he's teaching us in the relationship he has with his human followers, something about love. And the first characteristic of love, Paul describes it. First Corinthians 13, 4, love is, is patient. Love is patient. Dallas used the word relaxed. Gets us out of the religious category. Sometimes I I think we use the word patient. We think of sort of teeth-gritting endurance. I'm going to get through. Oh, God, give me the patience to get through it. Give me the patience to deal with this bozo at work who anybody else would explode with rage over. God, give me patience. But but Jesus was never a teeth-gritter. It never comes across, at least not in my reading, as uptight or stressed out or ill-tempered. That was well known among his disciples. You never find the disciples saying to each other, watch out for Jesus today. <laughs> he must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. No, He was patient, relaxed, unlike anybody that they'd ever known. The circumstances, I mean, let's be clear, the circumstances were often awful. But love is patient. Love is patient, but sometimes we are not. Hands up if you think patience is our Achilles heel. There was a survey done recently at a large church. Several thousand people participated, and they were asked, of the fruit of the Spirit, which part of the fruit of the Spirit would you like to grow in the most? Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Paul says the fruit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, nine things all part of the fruit. When asked which part you felt you most needed help with, 50% of people said patience. In fact, when they did the analysis, more people said patience than the cumulative total of the other eight. That's not a church in a big urban area like the GTA. This was a church in southern Georgia, in the deep south of the U.S., where people can't even talk fast, let alone live fast. My personal opinion, I actually think patience may be the most underrated virtue in the marketplace. A lot of leaders, a lot of bosses don't want to be known as patient. They're afraid that patience means wimpiness 
or indecisiveness, or not being fully committed to the mission. But patience in the Bible doesn't mean being passive, doesn't mean lacking urgency, or failing to hold people accountable or tolerating chaos. Patience, patience is the ability to dwell gladly in the moment, in the present moment, even when we would prefer not to. The circumstances are bad, but we're going to dwell here just the same. Patience has a way of embracing the urgency of what's going on in life and the reality of life, of our own bodies and their limitations, of the people around us and the relationships we have. Sometimes the word patience, if you have an older translation, sometimes it's rendered as the word long-suffering. That's actually kind of a good word. Nothing suffers like love. You know that, right? It's why when we grieve the loss of somebody that we love, it's so painful. Nothing suffers like love. Long-suffering. And Here's the deal. I think that has always been hard for human beings. In fact, it might actually be harder for us now in this generation even than it was for the generation in which Jesus lived and taught. Why? Because we live in an era where everything accelerates. The focus of all technology and achievement seems to be on accelerating the pace of life. People have always had food. What is the unique contribution of our generation to the history of cuisine? Fast food. So now you pick food not based so much on its quality or its price, but can you get it fast? So you can go in and order and sit down and eat it, and even that isn't fast enough. So now you can drive up to a window and plomp down your dollars and get your food and eat it in the van with your family the way God intended. We invented not just online dating, but speed dating, not just checkouts, but self-checkouts and express checkouts, overnight shipping, instant messaging. We text, but it takes too long to spell out words, so we use acronyms so we can get the text out there, ASAP. Yeah. We look at screens. We do it till we're exhausted. Hey, I'm not making this up. I read this this week. When asked about the competition, things like Amazon Prime, and Disney Plus, and other streaming services, the CEO of Netflix said that their biggest competitor is sleep. You get what he's driving at? That's what they're after. Maybe people would stop wasting so much time sleeping so that they could actually look at more online streaming content. They'd get control of more screens. It wasn't that long ago, you know, 1879, not that long in the history of humanity, that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Now it never gets dark. Now we don't have to go to bed when it's dark anymore. Great writer. Seek him out sometime. His name is John Mark Comer. Wrote a book called The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark Comer says, before Edison... North Americans slept on average 11 hours a night. When's the last time you slept 11 hours? We read about the great heroes of our faith, like John Wesley or Teresa of Avila getting up at 4 in the morning to pray, and we, we think, what martyrs they are. They went to bed at 7 p.m. They'd slept there seven hours. They went to bed because there was nothing else to do. The sun went down. There's no device to turn on. 
Hey, for all we know, Jesus slept 11 hours a night. Maybe that's why he's so nice to people. Think how much nicer we would be to people if we got 11 hours of sleep. You'd be a great person. I'd be, I'd be wonderful. Dallas once said, one of the things that you do when you become a disciple of Jesus is you start to do with urgency the things that you've always known you should be doing, like getting a good night's sleep. We said it again and again and again, that your preparation for worship on Sunday morning begins when you go to bed on Saturday night. Your preparation for that important activity tomorrow will begin when you go to bed tonight. And it may seem like we're making something absurdly trivial uh, into something monumentally important. But impatience, impatience has huge ramifications. Impatience will kill your prayer life. Impatience will mess up your relationship with your family. It will lead to a shallowness in life. I don't want to finish this assignment. I don't want to stick with this diet. I don't want to stay in this marriage. I'm not going to honor my commitment. I don't want to stay on this budget. I don't want to obey God in the area of my sexuality. I want what I want, and I want it now. Because that's the mantra of our generation. And you deserve it. Advertisers will line up to tell you, you deserve it, and you deserve it now. Love is patient. It's long-suffering. God wants to grow patience in us. And if, if that's part of the goal, let me just think with you about what it might take to do that. What does it take to grow patience? Well, God is going to have to give you something to learn to be patient about. Let me just give you an analogy. There's a mollusk. Do you know what a mollusk is? Yeah. Mollusks, how many of you remember high school biology? Clams, oysters. There's a mollusk called the silver-lipped pearl oyster. One of these little creatures produced a single pearl that sold for $1.5 million. To make a pearl, an oyster needs only two things. It needs an irritant, and it needs time. You see, the oyster has to find some way to cope with this little irritant if it's going to flourish. So a little grain of sand gets in there. It's kind of like a parable. And the oyster gives a tiny bit of itself to the irritant. It secretes a substance called nacre, which forms a little layer. It's kind of like saliva that hardens into this lustrous, iridescent kind of finish. So it secretes a layer, and then another one, and then scores of them, and then hundreds, and then thousands. It will take 20 years for that little irritant grain of sand to be fashioned into a pearl. Lifespan of a mollusk might be 40 years. You produce only two pearls in your life. To produce patience, you need only two things. You need an irritant and you need time. Hands up if you brought your irritant with you here. No, don't. (laughs) Hey, if you don't have an irritant... Let us know. Give us a call at the church. Nathan and I, we've got a long list of irritants. We can give you one because we want you to grow in patience. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Paul starts with two positive aspects about love, patience and kindness. He's going to go on and talk about 
eight negatives. It does not envy, it is not boastful or proud or rude. We'll start looking at those next week. But there are two positives. Love is patient. That's the passive side of love. It's long-suffering. But here's the action side of love. Love is kind. One of my favorite examples of kindness in the Bible has to be King David. David, who had to learn patience early on. The great irritant in David's life was Saul. Remember, David had been, had been anointed as king as a young boy. But he had to wait years, decades even, to become king. The old king was insanely jealous and hatched a series of plots, hunted down David to try and have him killed. To say that Saul was an irritant is an understatement. David's friend, Jonathan, you know, the, the descendant of Saul, and Saul himself eventually passed away. And David, who learned patience from this situation, asked, this is in 2 Samuel, is there anybody left Anybody in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of my dear friend, Jonathan? Turns out there was one. One remaining descendant of the old deposed king is a young, lame, frightened boy named Mephibosheth. Say that, Mephibosheth. Yeah. Biblical names are becoming really fashionable again, but I've, I've yet to find a young Mephibosheth. Near there. David befriends him, protects him, honors him, feeds him, even though most people looking in would see, this is your rival. This is a sole remaining contender for your throne, but for David in his life in the kingdom of God, not only is love long-suffering, love is kind. And he's going to go out of his way to show kindness to Saul's only remaining descendant. The question that loving people will ask is not around emotion. How do I feel differently about a person? It's around action. Who can I show kindness to and what would that look like? Maybe that's the question that we take into the week. Who can I show kindness to and how can I do it? This is a place where the the minimum entry requirements are actually quite low. You don't need a lofty education to do this. It doesn't take pedigree or a resume. It doesn't take a lot of money. Who can I show kindness to? And what would that look like? In the few moments that we have left, I want to just think with you about some practical exercises. These might sound kind of silly, but, but the simpler they are, the more likely we are to remember them and do them. So some practical exercises. And the first one, love is patience. So the first practice I want to encourage in us this week is the practice of slowing. Slowing. And in this practice, we deliberately put ourselves in situations where we have to wait or move more slowly than we otherwise would. Why? We want to cultivate in ourselves the capacity for patience and to endure and to enjoy the moment with God. So just this week, here's the practical suggestion. Drive the speed limit. Do it joyfully. Our family live in one of the neighborhoods where the city is experimenting with traffic calming. That, that means that across the neighborhood, the speed limit is now 40 kilometers an hour, and a bunch of the streets, it's 30 kilometers an hour. It's hard. It's hard. And to make matters worse, they put up photo radar cameras. And I know that we're not the only ones struggling with that because every couple of days, people spray paint over the glass window or push the things right over. 
We're struggling with it. What I'm suggesting this week, drive the speed limit. Be conscious about doing that. And in those moments, turn your hearts towards God. Keep your eyes on the road. Turn your hearts towards God. God, how can patience be part of the rhythm of my life? This week, when you come to a stop sign, here's a radical idea. Stop. Not the rolling stop, the drifting stop. Actually, stop all circular motion in the wheels and ask God in that stopped moment, God, would you be at work in my life? I want to be a long-suffering, patient person. Because it's amazing the power of impatience. You remember this story? About a year and a half ago, I think in April or so, a man felt like he'd been cut off on the road. I think builds rage like driving, right? And bad drivers. Felt like he'd been cut off. He followed the car home, took out a gun, shot the driver and his 10-year-old daughter. You might be thinking, well, I haven't shot anybody. I'm doing pretty good on the patient scale. Our aim is not just to avoid shooting people. The aim is love. Yeah. So this week, instead of, of driving, thinking of everybody else on the road as the competition, they're not getting in in front of me, Say, is there anyone on the road I can show kindness to? Come on in. I can see you're having trouble merging. Come on in. Give them a finger salute, but give them the right one. (laughs) Peace. We love you. (laughs) You stop at the light. There's a car in front of you. Light turns green. There's no movement. Quote Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't reach for the horn. Just this week. Drive deliberately in the slow lane. When you get to wherever you are three minutes late, that's going to kill you. No, it won't kill you. Pray that God is teaching you the lessons of patience. When you leave the room after this service, walk slowly. I know some of you are planning your escape route right now. How can I get out? Yeah, Walk slowly, not like, I don't know, Pavlov's dogs. The bells go off. And out you go. I was thinking about this this week. What if somebody who visited the church today or in the days ahead uh, was asked about the experience? How would you describe it? What's the place like? What if they said, you know what? People are really relaxed. There's just this peaceful feeling there. They didn't feel rushed. They had time. They looked you right in the eye. You felt human there. What if any time somebody came to one of our gatherings They never walked away without the feeling that there was this unhurried delight in being together. What if they experienced just the simple acts of kindness because love is patient and love is kind? Don't be creepy. I mean, don't creep on people that are new, but but simple acts of kindness. What if it just overflowed, not just in here, but in other areas of our lives? You could do that. Here's another practice for the week. There's only 14 more, but we're not in a rush. Yeah. Uh, Another practice is noticing people. Love is patient because I think only patient people really notice others and notice what's going on. You can't love people if you don't notice them. Jesus Noticed the tax collector hanging out up in a tree and other people had ignored him or disregarded him. He noticed a man born blind from birth. Other people didn't even recognize him. A woman in the middle of the crowd who reached out and touched the hem of his garment. Nobody else noticed her. She was just the crowd. 
Jesus noticed the little children whom the disciples had not just disregarded, but pushed to the edges. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Of course he has time for you. Jesus notices. He's the great noticer of humanity. Why relaxed people look? Hurried people we overlook. Have you had that experience? I do this all the time. This is confession time. Somebody's new. Hi, I'm Richard. I'll introduce myself. I'll ask for their name. 20 seconds later, gone. Gone. That's not just a failure of memory. It's a failure to notice. Because in my mind, I'm already to the next conversation. Notice people. Are they sad? Are they scared? Do their eyes light up? Or are their shoulders slumped older? over? Are they celebrating something great? Or, or are they burdened with something hard? Who can you show kindness to? Because love is long-suffering. Love is kind. And because love is patient, love is also forgiving. You can practice that this week. Lots of chances to do little relationship repairs this week. Remember what Paul wrote, Ephesians 4? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Love is patient. It forgives. To not love is the opposite. To not love, to be short-tempered, to be hot-tempered, to to lose your temper. Love is long-suffering. It can suffer and it doesn't quit. In every moment, it looks for opportunities for patience and kindness. It's not mustering up our own effort. It's surrendering ourselves to God in order to receive what He has to give so that we can give what we do not have means that we live in the unseen reality of the kingdom of God. Well, you've been very patient. <laughs> let's, uh, let's wrap this up. I, I've had kind of an interesting week. It began beautifully as I held a young life in my arms. Morning again, Aria. Yeah. And then I spent most of the days during the week in and out of hospitals at the bedside of those whose long lives are very slowly and quietly ebbing away. And yesterday, again, some of us were gathered on the front lawn, again, celebrating another blessed young life. And I was thinking about the contrast between the two, these two stages of life. These beautiful, smooth-skinned, young, bright-eyed bodies. (laughs) And then these older, dim-eyed Wrinkled bodies, worn out, failing. You know, in between those two stages, there is a life to be lived. One life. And nobody earns it. And you can fill that life with nobility and goodness and wonder. With patience and kindness. Or you can just throw it away hurriedly stupidly, wastefully. Nobody knows how long you get between those two stages. But you only get one go at it. And every moment is like a gift. Why rush past them? Why throw them away? This is the pearl of great price. This is life in the kingdom together with God. This is love and joy and gratitude and pain and hope all mingled together. I Charge us today with this. Don't miss it. Notice and care. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. We pray with me. Bow your heads. Your life is, is about many things, but it will never be about more than this. About God's love in you and through you. There is no other place that you need to go. There is nothing else you have to do right now than just sit in the loving presence of God and allow that to fill you and empower you. So let's pray together. God, help us to love. Will you pray that with me? God, help us to love. Pray it again. God, help us to love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.